We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. This is uh, episode 26 of the Rock Art Podcast, and we're uh, blessed and honored to have the principal archaeologist for the National Mojave Preserve, which is in the eastern Mojave Desert. His name is David Nichols, and he will be speaking about rock art, his own background, and a unique perspective on rock art. Welcome out there to my audience of people who have tuned in in the past and are tuning in now for the Rock Art Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And we have a, a wonderful guest today. He is the uh, archaeologist, the principal archaeologist for the entire National Mojave Preserve, and that is in the eastern Mojave Desert. And it's uh, jam chucky full of remarkable rock art sites. And he has the responsibility of uh, doing something to manage those sites. And uh, I think we'll hear from David Nichols a bit about his background and uh, how he can possibly go about that. David, are you there? Yes, I am here. <laughs> Tell us where you're geographically right now. So geographically, I am on my own private 30-acre in-holding parcel in the middle of the Mojave National Preserve. I'm the only National Park Service employee at this particular Park Service unit that is also a private landholder. And what's one of the unique and wonderful things about this particular park is you can own private property here and the government won't take it away from you, although you are encouraged to sell it, sell your property eventually to the National Park Service. And I am here at 5,200 feet with my wood-burning stove blazing away. That's, that's rather wonderful. So if we uh, look and reflect and take kind of a, a backwards glance towards your life, the opening question is often one that uh, I call it the million dollar question. How the heck did you get to where you are now? And how did you get interested in this subject matter of archaeology, anthropology, rock art, and things related to uh, Native American or indigenous people worldwide? How did you ever find yourself interested in specializing in that domain? Where did it all begin? <laughs> uh, well, for starters, I am a tribal citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma. 
So I was I grew up with stories from my grandparents and my parents about the Trail of Tears and the the history of the Muscogee Nation from the Georgia and and northern Florida, Arkansas areas. And I always had an interest in in archaeology and Native American history as pertains to especially North America. And flash forward in 1989, I graduated from University of California at Santa Barbara. At that time, not having any idea that there was actually a degree offered in anthropology, much less archaeology. So I ended up with a degree in mathematics. Mm. But I took that degree. Really? I moved. Yeah, I took that degree. Uh, and it's a BA in mathematics. So it's more theoretical rather than mm -hmm. uh, up applied side. And I got a job with a small archaeological firm in Hawaii. Oh my and word. what I did was I hired on as a computer consultant. And I turned, and this is 1989 again, remember, I turned all of his entire business from uh, hard copy sort of paper business into all computer-based, including... Uh, illustrations and cartography and everything else. And he was such a small company that he eventually started training me and utilizing me in, in field work, excavation, survey, and whatnot. A couple years with him, and I hired on with a, uh, a larger environmental firm and then spent the next 15 years working across the Pacific from Hawaii to Australia doing uh, archaeological work. Later on, I relocated back to California. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So half my career was actually in the Pacific. And you could divide half of that in, in again, itself between World War II archaeology and prehistoric archaeology of several different Micronesian and Polynesian cultures. Got tired of the island life, relocated back to California, which is where I'm from, Los Angeles area. And at age 35, applied to grad school at Sonoma State University and finally got that degree in anthropology. The interesting part of that was they, they looked back and not having an undergraduate degree in anthropology sort of posed a uh, academic issue for them. They were going to have me do some remedial undergraduate courses, but after my first year in graduate school, with all the years of field work and and uh, personal study I had done with theory and methods, decided I didn't have to take any of those undergraduate courses, which was a fortunate thing. What did you find was the most kind of valuable or interesting or engaging part of your 15-year stint all across various places doing cultural studies? That must have been fascinating. Well, you know, each island group, and I worked in several different ones. I worked in the Marianas Islands, Guam, the Marshall Islands, and the Hawaiian Islands. They all have a very different, very unique type of archaeology, which is fascinating in and amongst each island group. In Hawaii, you know, you could be miles, and this actually happened to me, miles away from the ocean. You step into a, a volcanic lava tube and you find a canoe burial in there where you find a skeleton wrapped in, in decorated bark cloth with woven baskets next to the craniums. And that's very different from, say, something oh on the island of island of Tinian in the northern Marianas Islands where you excavate through 30 centimeters of cultural deposit and find a, a caliche or calcium carbonate hard pan floor and randomly break through it with an iron bar and find a the oldest deposit ever found in the Marianas Islands below that. And that also happened to me as well. It's real different from culture to culture, but the stuff out there was fascinating. Thing is, you have to have a, a mindset to be able to want to live on islands, which I got burned out on pretty, pretty much after that 15 years. So you had 15 years of field work, then you decided to come back to California Right. And you enrolled at uh, Sonoma State to get right. your master's degree. Right. What was that like? What was that like? Uh, was that was that a productive time? Did you do a thesis? Yeah, I did a thesis that I had to defend. You know, my heart was always in this part of California where I work now, though, the, the Mojave Desert. I had grown up coming out here with my father camping and mm -hmm. hunting and four wheeling in this area. 
and finding petroglyphs, a site that you're working on, Mary's Cave. I grew up hunting around that area. Mm -hmm. So I've known about that site since I was a kid because my dad always pointed it out to me. So when I came back to California, you know, you don't have bifaces in the Pacific. So I didn't even know what a biface was. So I, <laughs> I did not feel qualified to apply to a graduate program in California to do archaeology in the area that I love, knowing that I didn't have the knowledge base. So I did spend five years working in California before I applied to that graduate program. And then when I was accepted into that graduate program at Sonoma State, I did all of my studies in the California desert where I'm at now. Oh, really? Yeah. And what I like to tell aspiring graduate students in archaeology is, hey, do your research while you're in graduate school, while you're able to, in the area that you want to end up in. As it turned out, what happened for me was National Park Service personnel started noticing me sort of haunting around sites that I was aware of in, in the desert area down here. And they ended up hiring me as the local expert. This place where I work now was called the, the Lonesome Triangle. And it was called that in archaeological circles hmm. professionally because so little research had been done here. To date, I've done as much or more research as, as anybody over the majority of this 1.6 million acre area. Wonderful. What an interesting segue. So you find yourself there in this lonesome triangle. How did you come? What, what transformed over the time you've been there? I imagine there's been some rather interesting developments in terms of your program and what you were doing. Were you hired on as the resident expert from the get-go? So they had no field archaeologists. They've always had people, you know, this became a park in 1994 under President Clinton. They've always had sort of an overriding managerial personage in the capacity or title of park archaeologists here. They never had a field person. Mm -hmm. And typically these people that had held that position were, you know, stodgy old folks that had worked all across the U.S. at various other parks. So I was the first actual youngish sort of person that they hired on as the park archaeologist, quote unquote. And I was expected to run around like a madman and do all kinds of field work, create my own projects, run my own program, which I largely did for up until five years ago, a lots and lots of field work. Okay. And what happened? Well, you know... You get, you get different people in charge of parks and, and a fellow came along and decided that I was, I should be more of a manager and be managing the program okay. and spending much less time in the field. Where is, you know, is how folks like yourself have come along. So whereas you're doing now the type of research out here that I personally used to do now, you know, I'm more about getting funding and putting together contracts and finding interested personnel to do the work and sort of riding herd on, on those contracts. Well, let's jump back. You said that when you were at Sonoma State, you did a thesis and that you spent a lot of time doing research in the Mojave Desert. Can you, can you give us a few glimmers of what that was all about? Sure. So Sonoma State's in the Bay Area. And of course, we're about 400 miles south of Sonoma State here in the desert. But I had from day one, absolutely planned on and dedicated myself towards doing my research here in what is Mojave National Preserve. So what I ended up doing was finding an old miner's cabin and moving into it, lock, stock and barrel. I lived in this little miner's cabin for eight and a half months. And in that cabin, I did all of my field work and all of the thesis write up under lantern light. I would do field work during the day and then write up and formalize notes in the evening under lamp, lamp light. And, uh, you know, we're talking over 100 degrees in the summer, no cooling, and, and then six degree winters in the snow in that same little cabin. What I did was I looked at 12 perennial springs 
in the preserve. This is a particularly wet part of the Mojave Desert. It's rather surprising. But when you see these things, you realize that there is actually quite a bit of water here. And what I wanted to look at was surveying areas geographically defined, what I, what we call to intuitive surveys, right? You come across a some kind of a geographic barrier, like a, a sharp ridge or something. And then you, if you cross that, you've left the area of interest, which for my study would have been the water source. And what I wanted to look at was all of the archaeological, prehistoric archaeological sites around those water sources and whether or not they were there because of the water access. Were these sites dependent on the water being there or weren't they? And of course, the conclusion to that was both. <laughs> there were some sites there that absolutely were dependent on the water <laughs> being of water being available. And there were some sites that were absolutely independent of water being there or not. And I did try to write a proposal as a follow-up because that was my thesis work. But with, within the park, I told them, hey, that's only half the study. Now, what we should be looking at are similar geographic areas that don't have a water source and seeing if, you know, what those site, what that site distribution looks like. Fascinating. Well, sounds like we've gotten to an interesting juncture in our conversation. We um, kind of are moving, moving along, talking about your thesis. And I guess the next thing is going to be to talk about what it's like to be a park archaeologist in the National Mojave Preserve on the 1.6 million acres and what sort of resources are there and what kind of rock art is interesting and dynamic and, and endlessly engaging. So I'll catch you on the flip-flop. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and I'm uh, proud and blessed to have David Nichols, who is the park archaeologist for the National Mojave Preserve. and I apologize, we haven't spoken extensively about that in a, by way of description. David, before we jump into some of the strategy and some of the particular challenges that you face in trying to manage almost 2 million acres, tell us a bit about what makes the National Mojave Preserve distinctive. Where is it? What is it? And how is it configured in what kind of uh, elevation, floristic zone, and you know the run of the, run of the land? How's that? The busman's holiday. <laughs> that all sounds good. Well, Mojave National Preserve is, it's a National Park Service unit. It's called a preserve because we allow mining and ranching and hunting, but it's part of the National Park Service 
and it's treated just like most other national parks. We have all the emblems and the rangers with the flat hats and everything else. This is the third largest national park unit in the continental U.S., third largest after Yellowstone and Death Valley. So it's huge. Again, 1.6 million acres. We have elevations ranging from 800 feet to 8,000 feet, which include Pleistocene dry lakes all the way up to relict white fir forests up in our highest points. So in terms of an archaeological context, you can imagine, especially for an, a desert environment, that we have just about every kind of resource imaginable. We actually have some unique geographic areas that are Pleistocene relics that are canyons that are situated in such a way that they have retained sort of a coastal scrub type community. So we have things like Manzanita and Madrone and really lots of oaks. We have live oak and scrub oak and it's interesting. I mean, if you can think about, most people don't think about gathering acorns or pine nuts in the desert, but they absolutely, we absolutely have those resources here. Amazing. So I guess the the major plant forms you have is Joshua tree, pinion pine, and then other sorts of, you know, almost coniferous forest at parts, don't you? We do in the highest points. And then, you know, we have the low desert scrub, that you get down around the, the Pleistocene, the, the lake shores. Those lake shores are fascinating too, because they uh, we're actually working, actually, I'll talk about that in the third segment, but there's some fascinating and unique archaeology to be seen around those, those lake shores as well. Fantastic. So since this is a rock art show, and one of the reasons I have you on here is because of rock art, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what kinds of rock art resources there exist in this 1.6 million acre preserve? So we have petroglyphs and pictographs. I have yet to find any geoglyphs here, although I know that they're on either side of the preserve itself. So there's no reason to uh, not think that they might be somewhere in the preserve as well. But, you know, at 1.6 million acres, I'd say less than 1% has been systematically surveyed and inventoried. So many generations of archaeologists will have plenty of work to do here. Culturally, what we're looking at are uh, the archaic. Those would be the the types of Great Basin, curvilinear, abstract type stuff that can't be culturally typed. That's sort of the catch-all ancient types of petroglyphs that we find. Coming into 700 to 1700, you've got Patayan style, which would be the ancestral Mojave. The Mojave specific to this, this area. This is kind of the heartland of the Mojave prior to 1700. And theirs is what we call the Grapevine Canyon style. It's a very distinctive style. It's geometric. It tends to be symmetrical. The, the glyphs tend to be complete in and of themselves. You can find them in combinations or you can find them by themselves, a unique glyph. To our, our Eurocentric eye, they're rather pleasing looking, uh, unlike the archaic stuff, which just sort of meanders and, should, and has you know lines that wander off with, with dots and, and, and scarring on the, on the rock surface. And then the most recent style we have is what they call the pneumic scratching, which we we ascribe to the Chemuevi, which are a southern Paiute group that moved into the area along through the pneumic expansion in the 1700s. And in this area, those those were the peoples that the U.S. Army and miners and and homesteaders and and travelers, immigrants were were running into in this area. The pneumic scratching tends to be single, fine line, incised. It tends to look like cross hatching or chevrons. A lot of times you'll find it superimposed over the top of the Mojave Patayan style. The Mojave Patayan style tends to be much larger glyphs than the, than the pneumic scratching. And it comes in a variety of, of methods, of typologies 
including pecked, grooved, and abraded. And the, uh, the archaic style tends to be pecked and abraded. So that's the, and we also have pictographs. Pictographs are harder to type. We generally think that the the Numa were making the pictographs out here, as well as the Mojave. We're not completely sure. We haven't really done any kind of dating out here for pictographs. And stylistically, they're kind of all over the place. We haven't been able to pin them down or attribute them to any particular group, with the exception of when we find horse and rider images, in which case we are able to ascribe those to the pneuma. Interesting. Also with the petroglyph style, I think you can include cupules. We don't have a lot of cupule sites out here, but when we do, they're usually at pretty special intense use areas. Interesting. What has been the general thought of the purpose or the sort of the function and nature of these rock art expressions? What have the scholars, the archaeologists, the anthropologists helped us understand as the nature of how those particular expressions, those sites, fit into the cultural systems as part of their ongoing lifeways? Boy, you're asking the wrong guy that question. So I I learned uh, <laughs> I, le- I learned early on that That's that. Uh, archaeologists that that work in the rock art in theory of rock art and and what it means and yeah. uh, scholastic theory yeah. i mean you're never you're not uh-huh. going to find two you're not going to find two phd's that that have the same thought on it i i actually That'd did agree. a paper i actually did a paper in graduate school about uh whether or not rock art could be considered doodling i mean there's you know they had the same brains that we have now they have the same thought processes. They have the same interests. They probably did artwork. They probably had some leisure time. Sure. Why couldn't they? Why couldn't they be doodles? And when I threw that out there, boy, I was, I got hammered by the rock art community. <laughs> they want, they don't want to hear any. They don't want to hear anything about prehistoric doodling. So you know, I leave it to <laughs> folks like your, like your, like yourself and Dr. Whitley. And what I what I like to do uh-huh. is read is read the different literature and what the latest uh, uh-huh. theories are on the rock art. But I don't I don't speak to it myself because I don't study it the same way you you manic rock art folk do. <laughs> but I am interested in it and I do keep up with it. But I but you know the the general feeling is that it's ceremonial, and I can see in terms of larger site context, why why that would be considered as it is. Out here specifically, you tend to find rock art a lot of times around significant water sources. You know, you could argue that the fact that you're in this, this vast desert and there's water there, that you might take some time and and peck some images on the stones around you because you don't have to hurry off. You've got water right there. And a lot of times out here, you'll find uh, bedrock milling associated with these, especially petroglyph sites around water sources too. So, you know, arguably you're sustaining yourself while you're sitting there with an abundance of water and scribing these images to the stone faces. Well, let's talk about a different different aspect of rock art. Why are people so interested in rock art? The general public, Native Americans, there seems to be a... Um a growing passion certainly to visit and perhaps appreciate rock art sites. Do you see that in the park? Yeah, for sure. And Is I that understand that. You're aware that. Of? Okay. Uh, yeah, for sure. It it's fascinating because you're looking at, you know, rock art, especially petroglyphs, arguably they can last longer than say a, a midden or a, a site archaeologically that that can be eroded away. And out here, you know, you're looking at thousands upon thousands of years and you're wondering what these people put there and why they do it. And, and why is one style so distinctive from another? What's the meaning behind them? And it's fascinating to muse on it. And again, I get the public all the time coming out here going, hey, where are all the rock art sites? I want to see some petroglyphs. <laughs> and there are a couple sites that we guide them to. But the majority of them we do not. 
Yeah, it's just interesting. You're you're looking at and and you can put your hand up next to something that somebody 10,000 years ago had their hand next to. And who knows what they were thinking or doing when when they were ascribing that image to the rock face. Which sites does that do you typically lead the public to that uh, are protected and perhaps available for public, uh, you know, interpretation? We have what's called the hole in the wall, hole in the wall rings loop trail, where we actually have interpretive signage and we interpret the site, which people can visit. If people do a minimal amount of research on the internet, they can find all kinds of other sites in the preserve itself that they can visit. There's a fellow out of Baker whose name was Bill Mann, and he's published locations of sites Mm -hmm. out here. And then there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people that have institutional knowledge that they've been sharing with others and word gets out. But, you know, there's hundreds upon hundreds of sites out here, rock art sites. So, you know, you got to figure 3% of them, if that, are known. So largely the sites are are in a passive preservation state in that uh, people don't know where they are, so they can't be affected. Great. So given this tremendous inventory of rock art sites, both petroglyphs and pictographs, how do you manage them? How do you protect them? Uh, well, what we, tr- what we try to do is document them. We want to document them and inventory them so that we can have a baseline by which we can monitor them. For the most part, there's nothing we can do except educate the public. And that works. You know, we have examples. You've seen them out here of hunters and others using petroglyphs for target practice Not so much now, but back in the day when, you know, this was Bureau of Land Management lands out here in kind of the Wild West, people had a lot less respect for because they had a lot less knowledge of and about the resources per se. So the baseline documentation and inventory is primarily what we're trying to do and then protecting locational information from just anybody. We don't lead huge tours or anything like that. And when we do run into people that have knowledge of the locations of these, we just sort of tell them, hey, it's not illegal to share that knowledge, but these are the issues that we have. And this is why we would prefer you not to publish or openly share this resource knowledge with others. Are you seeing a growing veneration or sort of respect for the rock art? Or is that something we're still working on? No, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I've seen the damage of the resources, the rock art resources and and, and archaeological sites in general out here. Remarkably, in the 19 years that I've been out here, it's really people have grown to respect. And, And, you know, one of the things I do is I talk to local groups in Las Vegas, in Needles, some of the smaller communities surrounding me, and I give presentations on these things. And I share the knowledge that professionally you and I are are uh, into reading in the gray literature and whatnot. And and then they feel like they're included in the protection of the resources. Yeah. So you're going to surprise us in the third uh, segment with some sort of a amazing case study (laughs) on specifically rock art. (laughs) Well, whatever. Uh, Give us a teaser before we're, what do you, what do you got for us? Well, I'd like to talk about the study the study we're doing around one of our dry lakes is pretty interesting. Wow. Okay. Well, we look forward forward for that in the next segment. See y'all in the flip-flop. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our tea public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Hey, all you uh, folks out in archaeology podcast land. This is your Rock Art Podcast with uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel of the California Rock Art Foundation. And we're blessed and honored to have David Nichols, who's the park archaeologist for the National Mojave Preserve in the eastern Mojave Desert of California. Are you there, David? I am. And you had uh, surprised us at the end of that last segment with a little treasure. You said you're going to uh, unveil a very, very interesting and engaging project that you think it has uh, has some legs and perhaps would be of great interest to uh, our listeners. Please uh, go right ahead. So we got, oh God, it must be 12 years ago now, uh, an interesting proposal by a young associate professor, Dr. Edward Nell at Cal State Fullerton to do a survey and an inventory of some rock quarry sites in the Soda Mountains, which is the very westernmost bound of our park here. The Soda Mountains also happen to be the western boundary of Soda Dry Lake, which is one of these huge Pleistocene dry lakes, and it's the terminus of the internally draining, mostly subterranean Mojave River, rather a famous river for those of us that work in this area. As it turns out, this had a very unique seam of kind of a blue, black, gray andesite that they were just coring the heck out of and making these huge palm-sized bifaces out of on site. And these quarries were all on this. And you do not find this particular type of material anywhere else in the, in the preserve, only around this lake and in these quarry sites. So I have no idea. We had no idea where this material is going, and that part of the study is ongoing. They were definitely working it around the perimeter of Soda Dry Lake, and they're of a type that's called Mojave Point type, and it's it's like a Pleistocene type of point, Lake Mojave Complex. We're guessing that the material is moving westward because it's definitely not moving eastward, but After we saw that, we started expanding the survey to include the entirety of what would have been the lakeshore of Soda Dry Lake. And we started doing transects parallel to what have been the shoreline. And we were finding bands of sites that would have been along Pleistocene lakeshores. Fascinating part of it is we found three of those bands. And those bands are showing morphological and technological differences in point typologies and other types of artifacts that are describing temporarily different shorelines. I rarely have seen water in in this lake basin, but, but this study is speaking to a sedentary culture type that is exploiting lake type resources, uh, including shellfish probably migratory birds. We haven't done any excavations around these shorelines, but this study's been going on for quite some time and it's ongoing and the data just gets more and more interesting. And Dr. Nell's been really great at, uh, at publishing and giving papers on, on describing what he thinks has been going on there. What's interesting is very few people that work in this area have attempted to do this type of paleo-Indian, arguably, type study. He came from the Midwest, and so he was really only looking for that really, really early stuff. So I was very skeptical when he came down here and proposed this study. Uh, But the further he pursues it, the more interesting it becomes because I don't find that type of early, early culture in most of the rest of the park. And we only have two of these sort of old Pleistocene lake beds and nothing's been done at the other, the other one. He's been doing all, concentrating all of his work at this Soda Lake complex. And it's just been fascinating. So these Western stem points that he's talking about, these are Lake Mm -hmm. Mojave and Silver Lake points or or also they they believe that some of those may have been uh, actual tools or implements rather than even projectile points or dart points but according to Claude Warren who's worked at the you know the 
Lake Mojave site itself for right. much of his adult career. That whole period dates between, I think, 7,000 and 12,000 years ago. Yeah, it's in that margin. And and Dr. Warren was the one that first identified that Lake Mojave complex. So not not that much is known about it. And the, and the work that Claude did was very limited. So this is really on the tales of his, his pioneering work, far and away the most type of work that, that's been done for, for that early, early stuff in that area. But yeah, you're right. I've never heard of anyone really doing a rigorous study of a quarry or biface blanks or some sort of you know reduction process that I know that Nell is famous for in terms of retrofitting or examining yeah. the actual lithic technology reduction and, and all of that involved which would be absolutely fascinating. And there is a controversy surrounding how ancient those Western stem points are. Some people believe that they are, in fact, coterminous or coincidental synchronous with the um, Western fluted style and go back to the uh, almost the earliest Paleo-Indian remains in all of California. Uh, you, you're, right. you're probably aware of that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I think... I think particularly the Mojave or Silver Lake point is is considered a little bit even earlier than what they call the Great Basin stem. I think it's considered it's a, it's typologically yes. a little bit un, it's unique from that and considered possibly a precursor or something a little bit earlier than the stem point. Interesting. Interesting. And, yeah. We do occasionally find fluting on some of these things as well. Fascinating. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So there seems to be a, de a derivative element of the technology that's carried forward from that Western fluted uh, ancient stratum. Right. Um, and of course, that's a subject that I've been working on, on and off for many years. But there's the, the issue surrounding, in, certainly in California, which is an ongoing discussion and I'd say a very topical controversy as to how old is there, first of all, a Western Clovis expression in California? And if it is, how old is it? What does it endure to? <laughs> and how does that technological structure relate back to perhaps some of the more classic material on the plains or in the American Southwest? And then, of course, what what were they eating? Were they really doing anything with some of that megafauna that we hear about? Because there has never been any, uh, you know, incontrovertible associations of megafaunal remains and human use anywhere in California. Right. As and I understand I, it. Yeah. And I, I throw the, the Clovis first arguments or Clovis in California uh, theorists yeah. In the same bag with you, rock art nuts. I I, I will not participate. <laughs> You're going to sidestep the uh, controversy, so oh, that yeah. uh, you'll 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 let us dabble and uh, try to deal with the data such as it is, and see what we can do to to resolve some of these thorny problems problems yeah. of typology, chronology. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you were saying that there seems to be some. Uh, association with distinctive or chronological typological expressions that are associated with certain episodes of the lake. Yes. Yeah. It's fascinating. We have three distinct lakeshore bands and he's done all kinds of mop, uh, modeling and looking at environmental conditions to, you know, the early Holocene, late Pleistocene era to see, uh, how those would reflect what the water stands would have looked like. And now he's got some grad students working on what would have been areas of shoreline growth where there could have been other seed resources or those types of, of things mm -hmm. going on across that shoreline. So the quarries are on the western shore of the lake and the stands where they're moving the material to where you actually have playa expressions are on the east side so all you see on the west side of of the lake is crazy quarrying and and making these big bifaces and moving material but you don't see 
secondary, tertiary, or finishing product production until you go to the east side of the lake. So they're procuring material on the west side, and then they're walking all the way around that thing, past Baker, California, to the to the playa stands on the east side. Yeah, it's really interesting. And wow. and like he just sent me even more data today, which was even more more interesting. Is is this Soda Lake and and Nell's work in the preserve still part of that same expression that we call Lake Mojave? It is. Lake Lake Mojave is made up of Soda Lake and Silver Lake combined. So so those two That's what even I was those thinking, yeah. Yeah, we consider Silver Lake the overflow. Uh, Silver Lake the overflow of Soda Lake. The two combined all together mm-hmm. is is considered Lake Mojave. So all the work that Claude's done and the work that Nell's doing might interfinger at some point, and we might have some sort of a take about what was going on chronologically, typologically, and even technologically for that in that fact. And then we just have to figure out what they're eating and what they're doing, right? Yeah, and N- Nels is going to be the greatest and latest because, of course, he's incorporating and speaking to the work that Claude had done. And uh, Claude Warren actually came out with us in the field and showed us where he had excavated and the sorts of things that he found and and uh, theoretically what, what he was thinking about. So um, nobody would have to go back to the original source material uh, it will be um, expressed in Nell's work, and it it will. It, nobody else is doing this kind of work out here. That's for sure. No, I'm sure not. Well, I know that just as a sidebar, during the excavations that Claude had done, he found an obsidian flake buried in one of their their units, and it was sourced to the Coso obsidian source. And yeah, the, we have uh, that hydration rim. The the measurement was quite substantial, certainly not quite equivalent to the oldest of the Paleo Indian remains, but damn near. So, yeah, fascinating yeah, stuff. What other things about other other projects do you think have some, you know, rock art sizzle to them? <laughs> I know ours did. What what about the um, the work there at the other? site vis-a-vis the um, archaeoastronomical elements out there at Council Rocks. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And you found a lot more that was credible to uh, theorizing that some archaeoastronomical elements exist at the Council Rocks site and the Mary's Cave site also. Uh, and Dr. David Whitley has, has spoke to a little bit of that. Again, I read about it and I study on it. I don't personally have much in the way of of theories about it, but it's interesting. It's interesting to me. Those sorts of things are are hard to prove when you don't have a lot of ethnographic information about them, and we really kind of don't. We have, I, in my opinion, sort of Eurocentric views of you know what midnight is or when the sun strikes a certain crack in a certain rock and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's still interesting to me. It's just it's hard to sort of source and locate and identify that in uh, if you talk to the tribes today about these particular sites or identify try to identify it in some of the ethnohistoric or ethnographic literature of you know the turn of the last century. Yeah, because much of their knowledge is now somewhat incomplete because of this demarcation with the uh, Euro-American intrusion and all of the catastrophes that face them in terms of trying to keep their culture alive and dealing with just the decimation and the population reduction and the loss of their cultural lifeways. So we're, we're trying, you know, we're trying to piece it together. Do a- absolutely that. And, you know, without being disrespectful, I mean, factually in the rebuilding of some of the their cultural characteristics and trying to rebuild the stories of their people and or origin stories and things like that necessarily they're bringing in elements of of modern day christian mysticism 
and and other things that have influenced them culturally in the last 150 years that they identify with and are incorporated into what they now uh, construe as the history of of their cultures and their origins and their beginnings. Sure, sure. And with any culture, of course, we're seeing the dynamics of cultures may appear to be stagnant, but they're vital and alive things and and yes. uh, wax and wane and change and transform. So I find that to be one of the more interesting elements of trying to understand some of the transformations and modifications of indigenous culture in rock art. And uh, as a sidebar, some of the stuff that I've done on the ghost dance rock art. Hmm. Interesting. So anyways, I guess that's a good place to leave it (laughs) (laughs) with another mystery. Yeah. David, it's been a pleasure. We, the, the hour went way too fast and we'd love (laughs) to have you back again sometime, but I uh, really appreciate you taking the time out of your rather busy schedule to uh, talk with us and, Share your passion for the Eastern Mojave Desert, the National Mojave Preserve, rock art, and uh, archaeology, anthropology. It's wonderful. Yeah. Cool. It was my pleasure. Thank you. See you next week, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time, minimum order $10, additional term supply. Instacart, add life to cart. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.